Welcome to Exposure Therapy, and today my special guest is Martin Vizora, a photographer and filmmaker. Um, out of, I, he's in Thailand right now, but uh, I met him many moons ago on set of a film where he was the director of photography. So, uh, Martin, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time late at night here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, um, I guess just to introduce everybody to you, uh, kind of what's your what's your background in photography and videography? How did you get into the industry in the first place? My background in visual arts uh, started with a love of films, like so many of us, you know. Um, my specific story when I was really young in Hungary, I was about maybe three or four years old and my parents showed me this dinosaur movie. It's called uh, One Million Years BC. And that was the first time that I just realized what movies can achieve. Like it was basically time travel for me at the time. And so from that moment, I was just in love with this idea that if you become a filmmaker, you can make dinosaurs come alive. You know, it's like the most powerful thing in the world. And so that was kind of like my basis. And then of course I went through my teenage years. I got into uh, computer science. I did a little bit of uh, a tangent there after high school. Not really a tangent, because I thought that if I went into computer science, I would eventually end up working in uh, CG, in movies. So I still wanted to work in movies. Mm -hmm. But then I just, after taking so many theoretical algebra classes, my brain was just like shriveling up. So I realized I just got to go straight to film school and skip all the, all the math, you know? <laughs> so yeah, then I went to film school and that was it. I mean, I've been a filmmaker ever since. I'd never had a backup plan or anything like that. It was just like no other option, just got to be a filmmaker. Um, and then kind of, uh, at the same time, I also started taking photos. I borrowed, uh, my brother's camera and I remember one night in Cambridge, I was just biking around and I found a frog in some reeds and I still have that photo. It's basically the first photo I've ever taken. And it's to this day, it's the most beautiful photo of a frog I've ever taken. <laughs> yeah, I should, I, yeah, I should send it to you. And, uh. But yeah, that was a very powerful moment too. I distinctly remember when I spent time with this frog and I just kept inching my way closer and closer as you do with animals. And I just, it was like this little micro world that opened up in the image. And it was also a very life-changing experience for me. I, I still remember it and I still have the image. What, um, <clears throat> you, so you got into filmmaking and then you got into photography as well. So do you, do you enjoy both equally? Do you kind of lean more towards one or the other? Or? Yeah, that's a very great question. I definitely enjoy both of them. And I not only do I enjoy going between them, I need to go between them. You know, when I, whenever I shoot a, a, a big feature with a crew of 20, you know, as soon as that's done, that month or two months of shooting, I just need to be by myself with a camera mm. and keep taking images and just, you know, satisfy that part of my creativity. So it's very nice to be able to hop back and forth. We're going to get into uh, all the kind of stuff that you shoot nowadays. <clears throat> but my question for you is uh, in comparing uh, still images versus uh, a film, um, how do you, I guess, <laughs> Not how do you feel? Um, what do you think each offers to the story? Like how, how does it differ in how an image will tell a story versus how you tell a story with uh, the freedom, I guess, that a film would allow you to do? Well, obviously an image has to capture one single moment. So you can capture movement in an image, but I think one image has to be a, an entire world onto itself and with film it's a little bit of a different approach because you can you can capture the before and the after of the moment if that makes sense mm -hmm. um 
However, it's a very interesting question because me being a photographer in my heart and soul, I think it's always affected my filmmaking. So I, I do approach even uh, shots in a movie with a very kind of uh, photographic uh, mm. mind. So I do try to capture as much into one frame as possible so that each frame can offer as much to the viewer as possible mm. and capture an entire little world. Um, and even naturally, you know, over the years, I, I, I noticed on myself that I always uh, naturally gravitate towards images that have a lot of detail in them. Uh, whether it's film or photography. And I think that's because of that in film is my background in photography. Yeah, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, I think that composition probably is king, like whether that be your still image or whether that be a moving image, right, or a film, that uh, yeah. see, seeing things photographically is going to amplify yeah. and, and elevate your, your filmmaking to, to that level, right? Totally. I think every cinematographer should be a photographer whenever they can't be <clears throat> shooting a movie because, you know, it's a, it takes a lot of energy. Even if you're shooting a documentary as a one man band, mm -hmm. it, it takes a lot of energy to, to film something as a moving image. Uh, but with a camera, you can just grab it by yourself, go out in Bangkok at 3 a.m and start photographing rats in the street light mm -hmm. and you get like amazing images, you know? And I think every, every camera person should, should do that because that's where you hone your skills or for me anyways, that's where I hone my skills, even between film shoots. So when I met you, we were on that film shoot back in, I believe it was Hamilton, Ontario on a film called the demolisher. And, um, and shortly thereafter, yeah, it was, uh, it was we were at the Hamilton under like the Skyway Bridge. There was like all that. Oh, good yeah, shit, yeah, stuff that's like right. That. With the gang there. members and the baseball <clears throat> yeah. bats. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you went from there uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, at, I fell in love with your photography when we connected there and I just kept following you. And then you found your way over in Africa. Can you explain that, that journey? What took you from shooting films here uh, over to doing the work that you're doing now over there? And I'll, I won't spoil too much of it. I'll let you uh, describe. Yeah. So when you just look at the sequence of events in my life after the demolisher, that, that was my first project in Africa. And it, it seems as an outsider, you could be forgiven for thinking that it's a, it's a huge turn. But if you, if you know me as a person, you know that I've always loved nature. Uh, my dad raised me and my brother just from day one as lovers of nature. And so that was kind of instilled in me from a very, very early age. And so a love of nature has always been a part of me. And that particular project in 2014, when I first went to East Africa, I linked up with a producer actually a couple of years before I actually left on that project. I met this producer when I was selling my African photography at a convention. <clears throat> and this producer who was producing African documentaries happened to be at this convention because I, I had already gone to South Africa just on a personal journey before that. And so that's where I gathered a bunch of wildlife photos. And so this producer saw my, saw these photos and he came up to me, introduced himself, and he said, hey, if you ever want to do a proper wildlife show, I can see you take really beautiful photos, you know, and you're also a filmmaker. You could combine the two and let me know if you're interested. And, of course, I jumped at it. So we kept up a relationship with this guy. Um, and, of course, with like anything in the film industry, it doesn't happen overnight. So we kept in touch. It took a couple of years. And then finally he said, Hey, it looks like it's a green light. I got the budget together. Um, and yeah, if you want, you can go live in East Africa for a year and shoot a bunch of episodes. And I said, let's do it. <laughs> I gave up my apartment. I just straight up moved to Kenya to do this thing. Amazing. It came, was... it came with one little <clears throat> caveat. He said, uh, -oh. <laughs> uh, you have to go do this. But before you go to Kenya, 
on our way to Kenya, we'll stop in Tanzania and you have to climb Kilimanjaro because he <laughs> was, yeah, he, he was shooting this other series. Um, and for one of his episodes, he had to get footage at the top of the mountain. And so I just tagged along and helped him film. And it was unbelievable. It was the most amazing trip of my life. Is that a difficult climb or is that, can you like hike it? It's, it's a hike. It's not really a climb. Like there's no technical climbing. Um, for me, it was very difficult. Um, because I'd never climbed anything at the time. And, you know, it's not really the, the physical effort that goes into getting to the top. It's actually just, uh, fighting through the altitude sickness mm. and the, the eight hour hikes up the mountain, just the exertion of it day after day. That's the difficult part. Um, and then, yeah, the, the conditions right at the top are really brutal. It was so cold and just icy winds you could barely see in front of you. So, <laughs> but it was amazing. <laughs> we made amazing. it to the top. So. You think Africa, you don't think I see winds. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. Yeah. So when you when you got there, uh, I, probably when you hit Kenya, I don't know about Tanzania, but there, there would have most likely been some sort of culture shock element for you. How did you adjust? You know, I've always had this deep love of Africa. And it was always since I was a kid watching David Attenborough films i was always romanticizing africa so honestly i have no memory of me arriving there and having any kind of culture shock if anything i felt like i finally i'm home mm. you know that was the that was the feeling that i had is i'm finally home let's let's go crazy and film everything awesome. <laughs> yeah so can you talk about some of your work in africa in kenya and uh, we'll get to some of your images here as we do, but can you give a kind of a broad introduction? Yeah, so in 2014, when I went to shoot that first documentary series, I ended up directing five one-hour episodes, standalone episodes on uh, conservation work in Kenya. And through that project, I was there filming for about a year, year and a half. And I became really close with the people who ran Lewa Conservancy, where I shot the series. And over the years, I just cultivated that relationship. <clears throat> I always kept going back, helping them with whatever films they needed. And I've actually, since then, I've become an official Lewa ambassador. Awesome. Along with Eliud Kipchoge. I don't know if you've heard about him. He's a Olympic runner. Kenyan Olympic runner. So we were kind of like the international spokespeople for this incredible place called Lewa Conservancy. And yeah, over the years, I've just become intimately familiar with everyone who works there, all of their initiatives, whether it's for conservation or for the, the livelihoods of people, local people. They go hand in hand, you know, there's mm -hmm. no conservation without helping local people. You can't just be an island. Um, and that's where Lewa's success lies, actually, is involving all the local communities in protecting wild spaces. It's amazing. Um, you know, we, sorry to interrupt there. We, th we think as people, as humans, we're like so separate from nature. Like we have the natural world and then us over here. <clears throat> but I think that's a disconnect, yeah. right? We're all part of the same ecosystem. Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah, we whenever we do try to separate ourselves from nature, it's good luck. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a catastrophic strategy to take through life. <laughs> so I, I'm going to bring up your uh, first image here. And uh, let's describe this one. This looks, uh, is this a long exposure? This is a long exposure. This picture, is actually very, very close to my heart. So these these guys, this group of guys is called the 9-1 team. Um, it's just a coincidence that it coincides with 9-1-1. It has nothing mm. to do with the uh, North American like distress phone line. Um, that's just happens to be their code in their specific uh, wilderness area. The, the, the radio code is 9-1 for these guys. 
Okay. And they're very special for so many reasons. Um, but the main reason would be that they're an elite anti-poaching team. And every uh, guy that you see in this photo, they're actually members of a different tribe in Kenya. So not many people know this, but Kenya has, I don't even know the final number, the latest number now, but I think more than 54 distinct tribes. And wow. I just would like to point out that uh, most of these tribes are as uh, unique and separate from each other as a Hungarian would be from a French person, right. you know, or a Norwegian from an, uh, an American person. Um, so it's not like, of course, some of them are somewhat related with similar languages, but mm. a lot of them have completely different linguistic roots as well. Um, and so the reason that becomes very relevant in the world of anti-poaching and conservation is because Kenya has all these groups of people basically um, competing for the same land, grazing land, because it's all wow. pastoralist communities. And so that's where all the conflict between people comes is different tribal conflicts of basically where you can raise your cattle. Wow. And so when you add all of these human conflicts with the disappearing wilderness, because all mm. of these tribes are rapidly growing, I think in the last, I can't remember what the exact number is, but something like in the last 50 years, Kenya's population doubled. So basically as soon as Western medicine and healthcare came in, it just allowed children to survive so much better and so now you have this exploding population with all these cultural identities but the land doesn't grow the land only gets smaller and so back to these guys is the reason they're incredible is because each one of them is from a different tribe a lot of whom uh historically are at war with each other but in this 9-1 unit they actually came together for a shared love of wildlife just to protect their wildlife heritage so it's actually a really beautiful story i actually just gave myself goosebumps talking about it because it's just the most beautiful example that i can think of from my life where people from different backgrounds even if they're enemies we can come together because what actually brings all humanity together regardless of who you are is nature on planet yeah. earth it's the one thing we all share together and so it's these guys have a really beautiful story and of course now they're all brothers in arms and it's just a, a really amazing thing to witness um actually two weeks ago i just got to thailand from kenya and i spent two months with these guys the 9-1 team i was living up at the security camp with them uh training them how to use drones now so we introduced, oh, awesome. yeah nighttime thermal vision drones oh, for two months we were up there yeah it was unbelievably useful like it's a game changer what we just did up there so you, you tell that story of how they come from the different tribes and kind of warring tribes yeah. together in unity for a single purpose and a shared vision uh, have you have you seen any uh, trickle-down effect into their local tribes because of them coming together? Does that spill over when they go back to their own their own tribes? I mean, no, definitely there is, you know, it's been so many years now that these teams have been operating and, you know, our generation, the younger generations, as we grow older, we have a different perspective on the world just like their young generation does. And I, I really do see it in a positive light that as young people grow older, we just move into the future with more peace between us. Mm. Um, so I think definitely they're moving in the right direction. Of course, there's still a lot of tribal conflict and people get killed almost on a weekly basis. You just hear stories in the news. But I, I, I'm hopeful that it's moving in the right direction ultimately. Mm. Especially guys, when you talk to these guys, you know, I mean, they're 
they don't even look at each other's tribal background anymore. I mean, it's just, mm. <clears throat> you know, literally brothers in arms, you know, which is a beautiful thing because they all have the same purpose. And when they're, when they're combating the things that they're combating, the poaching and, and stuff like this, I can imagine it makes their kind of previously <laughs> perceived as problems seem kind of pale in comparison. Yeah. You know, it is a job at the end of the day for them. Um, they just approach it differently than the way that Western, our Western sensibilities kind of romanticize it. You know, like those guys don't necessarily um, fawn over animals when they see them. You know, it's just wildlife to them. But they understand and, of course, they want to protect it because they know its value. Mm. But, you know, they, they wouldn't... Uh, they, they wouldn't necessarily approach animals the way we approach them with so much love and warmth and affection. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen, uh, you know, tribal Kenyan people pet a dog. It's just, it's not part of the way that they approach wildlife and animals, you know? Um, yeah, we kind of approach animals with a, with, a, with a human understanding and they just don't really do that. Um, but yeah. It's a job for them, but they take it very seriously, and they do care about it. So. Awesome. All right. Well, now that you said uh, they, it's a job they take seriously, here's a serious photo of them doing their job. Let's talk about this. Yeah. So this is actually one of the most extraordinary photos I've ever, I've ever taken. Um, it was on a attempted poaching site. <clears throat> so the elephant that you see here. I think probably around 30 minutes or an hour before this image was taken, the elephant was actually still alive. It was a, a big mother elephant mm. who had been shot uh, multiple times. And we received the call inside Lewa Conservancy that an elephant had been shot. So anytime it's an elephant or a rhino, those are the two really big important species. Mm. Um, the government body called the Kenya Wildlife Service <laughs> responds. They have to respond because it's such a high level um, event. Uh, and so the, the guys that you see in this photo, they're actually members of the Kenya Wildlife Service. So it's okay. basically it's basically a government police specifically for wildlife. So elephants and rhinos and you know anything else, but mainly elephants and rhinos. And so their job becomes as a rapid response team to immediately deploy and respond to wherever an incident was reported. And then, you know, sometimes that means finding poachers in the act and it ends up in a, in a shootout or, you know, sometimes you arrive too late. And in this case, the elephant was actually still alive. Uh, we're not sure why, but the, whoever shot it just didn't have a chance to remove the tusks. Mm. And so we kind of intercepted this thing. And unfortunately, the vet who was with us, it's uh, my dear friend, his name is Matthew Mutinda. He examined this elephant and unfortunately it was uh, beyond saving. And right when we were about to put it down, she actually expired on her own. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I think she was actually shot the night before this image was taken so she must have been writhing throughout the whole night uh trying to get up i remember she carved these deep kind of carvings into the dust all around that area just throughout the night as she was struggling to get up um but actually the most tragic thing about this <clears throat> case was that this elephant actually had a baby a young baby that was eaten by hyenas oh. the night before because she wasn't able to protect it yeah so she actually outlived her baby in the morning which is just horrific to think about yeah but uh, yeah sorry is um yeah no is the the guy on the right there with the axe in his hand i'm guessing he's taking the tusks off so that poachers don't get them after the fact that's exactly what's happening. So yeah. these guys are, like I said, the KWS, the Kenya Wildlife Service. They come in, they must remove the tusks. And after this cleanup, they go to a government facility, like a high security government facility mm -hmm. where they're 
uh, collected, essentially. Yeah. And is the um, is the elephant uh, left there again to, I guess, because she's already dead, is it left to um, feed their whatever other animals might be in the area? Yeah, I mean, it's such a massive that there's no way you would, yeah. you know, take it away. So you just, once the tusks are removed and put into this facility to keep them off the black market, you just leave the meat. And then yeah. in a few days, it'll be gone. You know, all the other wildlife come in and do the cleanup work. What, um, when you're going and doing this, are, I'm, I'm, are you using the same camera setup? And if so, like, what are you using to shoot these? Uh, well, this was back in 2014, 2015. So my setup at the time was, uh, I remember I actually was shooting on one of the first uh, Red Dragons, uh, which was mind-blowing. I just couldn't believe the resolution of those cameras. Um, and sorry, just to clarify, when I took this photo, I was actually filming my TV documentary series. Okay. So there's a whole scene of this actual event in the series. This was just a photograph that I also took. It was my Nikon D3S at the time. Okay. So that's what I was shooting for the images. Awesome. But for the film part, I was shooting on the Red Dragon. Nice. Uh, this yeah. image here, is this from the same event? This is from the same event, yeah. This is also one of the most amazing images I've ever taken because I think it just visually represents what it was like from my point of view. You know, you, you have those Western shoes mm. in an obviously wild setting with this otherworldly object that you kind of realize is the, the trunk of this elephant which is in itself an animal from another planet. So I think for me, this image always represented kind of the Western world bearing witness to the horrors that happen in conservation. That's what this has always represented for me is kind of, you know, bearing witness to what's really happening. And it's kind of like a wake up call, you know, the image is centered and it's just right in your face. You know, there's, there's no bullshit around this photo. This is happening every day in Africa. And so I just think it just makes you ask so many questions and it's kind of like a light bulb going off of like, oh, we should probably take notice of what's happening right underneath our feet. And so, yeah, that's why I really like that photo. It's amazing that uh, what got you into doing this in the first place was like, oh, I can recreate dinosaurs, make dinosaurs come back. And here you are recording basically actual dinosaurs. <laughs> That's, I always think that, man. To this day, I've been to Kenya so many times now. And every time I go and drive out in that safari vehicle and I see a giraffe or a rhino or an elephant, that's literally what I think every single time. It's like, how is this possible? These are actual dinosaurs that are still alive and they're just there eating on eating bushes and feeding on grass, you know, unsupervised. It's not a zoo. It's like entering the garden of Eden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've built today's episode is brought to you by Prairie View Photo Tours. Prairie View Photo Tours invites photographers of all levels to book their all-inclusive, authentic Alberta adventure at pvphototours.com. You've built a lot of relationships, uh, as you said, with the staff there that work at the uh, Lewa Conservancy. And you have a, a picture here of one of the gentlemen, I believe, that was on that 9-1 team. Can we talk about him? Yeah, so his name is Nanyuki. Um, He's a lovely guy. And so the reason I included his portrait in this one, because I actually just love this portrait. I think there's so much soul in his eyes and it's, he's just has such an extraordinary face and this image just managed to capture, I don't know, so much of his humanity. If, I don't know if that sounds cheesy, but I just really feel like it captured him as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, and his story is incredible because he was actually a poacher when he was younger. He was one oh, wow. of the most notorious poachers in the area. Um, he, had, he told me he has killed countless elephants, hundreds of elephants 
over his youth. And uh, at one point, he was caught by the intelligence teams working to prevent poaching. And because he was so good at what he did, they actually gave him an option. They just told him, listen, you can go to jail for the rest of your life, which in Kenya is probably less than 10 years and you'll die of disease or just you won't be able to survive the conditions. Hmm. Or you could come work with us and you can help us become stronger and help us with the strategies and tell us how poachers do things because that's invaluable information for people on the inside. Yeah. And so he's a smart guy. He made the right decision. <laughs> now, you know, um, he's older now. And I think he, of course, he's genuinely changed his outlook on life and wilderness. You know, I don't think he would be able to continue doing the, the dangerous job that he's doing just for the money. You know, mm -hmm. I think all of these guys, if you do it for the money, you very quickly get weeded out because you're risking your life and it's just not worth it. So I think at the deepest level, there has to be some sort of conviction that what you're doing has a, is very important meaning in life. And so I definitely feel that from him. Awesome. And now yeah, he's, that's... of course, one of the best... Uh, best guys he's actually not in the 9-1 team he's on the lewa team okay okay lewa in-house anti-poaching team on lewa okay. conservancy it sounds like the uh like the kenyan version of catch me if you can right they find that amazing criminal yeah. that <laughs> yeah yeah turn him totally. around to be uh yeah that's awesome yeah. i love that uh i love that story yeah i love his expression in this it's it's incredible man you know you go to these places and you meet these incredible people and I love it as a photographer because for the last 20 years, I spent my life basically looking at human faces through the screen. Mm. So I'm just like, I'm an expert at looking at human expressions. And I love Kenya because you don't really get people posing in front of the camera. There's like a, a pureness to people there. You know, it's not like our Western social media world where as soon as a camera goes up, you just feel the person's energy change, right? You're mm -hmm. trying to present yourself in a certain way. And I just, I don't get that with these images that I take, these portraits. So I love that. That's, you know, you just get to see the real person. Yeah, you're capturing a person, not their persona. Like, exactly. Like said, not the West. way they want you to see them. Yeah. Awesome. And you can see, he's telling this guy's eyes, like, <laughs> he's seen some shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, they have seen some shit. <laughs> awesome so i'm gonna take it a, a bit uh still africa but uh not these guys here we have some samburu warriors can you uh first of all beautiful photo and it just because of the angle it looks like this might have been a, is this a screen grab from a video or is this an actual yeah still so actually i included these i'm kind of cheating I'm not just including photographs, I'm including screenshots of just images that I've taken. So this is actually a shot from one of my short films about Semburu culture. And the reason I thought this was relevant is because a lot of the guys on the anti-poaching teams where I work in Northern Kenya, they are from the Semburu tribe. And so this is their traditional attire. This would be the traditional uh, male warrior attire um, very ornate very colorful and so actually the more flowers and the more colors you have the more masculine that is because okay. it just shows how powerful you are and it's actually really beautiful because it's all the women in the communities who put this jewelry on their men because it's their way of supporting uh, masculinity in a in in a healthy way, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's that's so fascinating for me about Semburu culture is that they they celebrate masculinity, and I think we live in the Western world nowadays in a very different culture where you know it started off in in a 
for good reasons, you know, like we all know the term toxic masculinity, but I think now in many ways it has kind of morphed and it's gone too far off the rails. Mm. And it, when I go to Kenya, it's a, it's a very nice reminder for me that some cultures still celebrate masculinity in a positive way. And I think that's so important. I mean, that's 50% of every human culture and it should be celebrated, you know? So, um, do the women in the Samburu culture uh, decorate themselves as well, or is this uh, uh, unique? They do. Them? They have their own decorations. Um, but yeah, this this is all male decorations here. Amazing. And here's just another and headgear. Yeah, this is also an incredible shot that I managed <laughs> to take. You know, I all my favorite shots, I actually don't really feel like I can take credit for them because... I feel like they're just little gifts from the universe that I <laughs> yeah, no can't doubt. believe I was able to get this shot. You know, it was just a, we were actually uh, slaughtering a goat one day with these guys and they, they built this huge fire and this guy was just standing there with his spear. And I saw the storm clouds gathering behind him with the fire. And it was just like the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. That's incredible. Those that's uh, the, yeah. The universe does do that sometimes, eh? It's just like yeah, all yeah, the planets yeah. align and the thing just, just yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I love documentary. I just, I love that feeling. It's so addictive. Whenever you Over get those here, uh, gifts. As a Westerner too, right? And uh, as someone who's not been to Africa, right? We see the stuff and it's, it looks very exotic to us too. It's a very interesting to our eye because I would imagine that everywhere you look there, there's something that's pretty amazing to see. Yeah, that actually reminds me. Um, I love, I love Africa, the African continent in general. And of course, there's so many countries you can't possibly generalize. But just from my experiences, the my the totality of my experiences, I would describe Africa as this extraordinary place where you either see the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, you could ever imagine, or the most horrific side by side often. Wow. And I, 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 that, that intensity has always spoke to me, I think, on a personal level because I'm a very intense person. I mean, I don't think of myself as an intense person, but many, many people have told me over the years, so there must be some truth to it. Um, but I think that continues to draw me to the idea of Africa is you get to see these crazy um, contrasts everywhere. So this work that you've done at the Lewa Conservancy, <clears throat> um, getting connected to nature and, and in, in kind of uh, plugging yourself in the community has led to some, I, don't know, I would call it activism through photography, um, in other areas as well. And one of them is in Hong Kong where you're an ambassador for, uh, is it the Hong Kong Wildlife Protection Organization? Can you correct me on the on the title there? It's H-K-A-L-P-O, H-K Hong Kong Alpo, I always call them. It's basically <laughs> a bunch of uh, lawyers that came together to actually uh, change things for the better on the legal side of things. Mm. And so, uh, Hong Kong is also a very special place for me. I left my heart there many years ago when I was working for DJI and I fell in love with this part of the world so much. And it's also a very significant kind of hub in the conservation world because a lot of the rhino horn, a lot of the elephant tusks, they would go through Hong Kong into mainland China, that would be the kind of gateway. Hmm. And so even with like, uh, you know, shark fin soup, a lot of the shark fin ends up in the restaurants of Hong Kong. And so I just felt that to support an organization like that, a team of lawyers who are making those efforts on the legal front would be hugely beneficial mm -hmm. because that's where you need to fight, you know? not just on the front lines in Africa, but also in Asia where all the, all the animal parts end up, so. A more holistic approach, right? Like not, yeah, not just attacking a symptom, but trying to come at it 
you know, systematically. Exactly. Just, I mean, it's, yeah, basically grabbing the snake at both ends. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We have some photos here uh, from Hong Kong. I'd love to chat about these. Yes. So I took these images in a place called the Hong Kong Botanical Gardens. And it's this really beautiful kind of a park, essentially. It's a park you can just enter as you walk through the, the city center. And right in the middle of this beautiful botanical garden with all these unbelievably beautiful plants all around you, you have these really kind of apocalyptic black um, metal cages where someone at some point thought it would be a good idea to put some primates and monkeys. And I remember, I didn't actually know that they had animals, like it, that it was kind of a zoo for primates as well. I just thought, cause it was just listed as a botanical garden. So one day mm. when I first went to Hong Kong, I just thought it would be a wonderful afternoon stroll through the gardens. And then I just, I came across these cages and I couldn't believe the contrast of being yeah. in this, again, this beautiful place. And then right there in the middle, you have these young mothers pushing their strollers through and you have like literally these beautiful animals getting tortured. And it just was such a, it left such a deep kind of traumatic feeling in me that I felt like I had to capture them. And, tell their story to the world. And so that's where these images were born is just me trying to show people what these creatures are going through. And it's horrible. I mean, look at the expression on this person's face. That's to me, that's a person, you know, behind that glass. That's not an animal. That's a person. There's a, there's a humanness to them that you just can't ignore. And I can't believe that anyone would think that this is okay to put a creature like that, which evolved to be in the green treetops of jungles of Asia and to put them in this giant metal cage with just black metal bars all around it. It's just hor horrific to even think about. Yeah, I have, um, I have always mixed <clears throat> So I lean more to one side than the other, but I mix feelings about zoos and stuff. It's like I, I have small children. I love them to be able to go see these animals and, and interact with them to a degree. But at the same time, it's so unnatural for it to be in like, a, you know, and, and even in some of the zoos over here, at least they have some kind of open area. I, I don't like them in captivity yeah. in the first place, but even at least they have some sort of fake yeah. nature, I guess, to play around in. But that seems pretty harsh. Yeah, you know, it's just like with anything in the world, you can't put a blanket like statement on all zoos in the world because not all zoos are equal. Um, there's also the reality of many zoos in the world, which are actually safeguarding some of the last members of disappearing creatures. So of course, mm. now with the reality of where we're at on the planet, you kind of need a lot of zoos because they provide, uh, you know, yeah. genetic diversity to a lot of those species that are going extinct in the wild. But yeah, this particular place, the Hong Kong Botanical Garden, it's not one of those places that you want to keep around. I mean, there's just no reason why these animals should be going through this in the mm -hmm. year 2023. You know, like no one actually likes it either. I remember I spent a lot of time there just observing. And most of the time when you see people walking past, you actually see the horror on their faces. Like no one's there having a good time. You know, the people are horrified of what these creatures are going through. And the creatures have lost their will to live. They're just kind of mm. hanging in there. Like, look at this orangutan. Is this the environment that an orangutan should be living in? I mean, it's just... It's it's beyond and, comprehension. And you can see the depression. Like, you can see it. It's palpable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these creatures don't move. He wasn't active. He just sat there staring off into space. I like this yeah. one, too, because it just... I mean, I don't like it, obviously. It's horrific. Mm -hmm. But just 
it almost looks like he's closing his eyes, imagining what it was like in the trees a long time ago. Man. But yeah. That's, so that's rough. <laughs> yeah, I try to show these photos, you know, anytime I you know, anytime I chance, I like to kind of bring awareness to the Hong Kong Botanical Gardens because I really hope that in my lifetime they're going to shut that shut those cages down remove mm -hmm. the cages and it'll be one of the most beautiful botanical gardens in the world so we're going to uh we're going to bring it up to a bit of a lighter note with some of these beautiful images that you sent uh, also from africa yeah and uh this yeah, is so i kind of wanted to end on a positive note with some of the just more stunning wildlife moments that i've had the uh fortune to witness in my career in the last 10 years this was a photo that i took on lewa wildlife conservancy and the big rhino that you see there her name is solio and they call her the grandmother of lewa because she birthed so many generations of rhinos and so i just thought this was such a beautiful image of her that kind of honored her legacy uh, because she basically single-handedly helped her species survive into the future uh, with all the beautiful babies that she she'd given birth to over the years and That's i just incredible. thought the clouds above her it was just i mean you don't need to her it was just i mean you don't you know i've never seen a rhino horn that large either sorry I've never seen a rhino horn that, that long either. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of special too because you see it's kind of curved and mm -hmm. her back one is just like a big stumpy one. It's a very, uh, very distinct look. You can always spot her even from a distance. You know it's her just from the silhouette. What's the, um, do you know the life expectancy on a rhinoceros? If well, left in natural... captivity, <laughs> in captivity, they can live up to 40, 45 years even. But of course, in the wild, I, it, it'll be, you know, if they get to 30 or 35, that's a mm -hmm. good age for a rhino. Awesome. All right. Uh, another rhino shot. I absolutely love this. <laughs> yeah, I love it, too. This is one of my I think this is my favorite photo that I've ever taken. Uh, it just really shows the. Just how gentle these creatures are you know when when you hear rhino and everyone's heard about how tough rhino skin is and they charge at cars you know everyone thinks that they're like walking tanks and of course in a sense they are they're very powerful creatures and they can do a lot of damage but i think not many people talk about just how fragile and emotionally complex mammals they are um you know these these creatures aren't out there to hurt anyone. And I just thought this image so beautifully represented that gentleness that you can find between them. Um, because it's just not the way that you usually see rhinos or think about rhinos. Also, Have this you... little baby rhino, his name is Kitui. He's just the sweetest little thing. I remember I uh, bottle fed him when he was this age. Uh... <laughs> And this was back in 2015. So what, seven years ago now? I actually just met him again and he remembered my smell. He put his oh, big, wow. he's a big rhino now. Yeah, he put his big head on my uh, lap. Basically wanted me to rub his face. Amazing, just like a dog. <laughs> just like a dog, just with much higher stakes. <laughs> you know, have you, rhinos uh, is, they don't even have to be aggressive. Like he can just be playing around and because mm -hmm. he's so huge, he'll just swing his head and everyone goes flying. So. <laughs> <laughs> have you been around and witnessed uh, these animals being birthed? I have never seen like the moment of birth because of course they always find a very hidden private place in some sort of river bed or a rocky area that's difficult to access. 
So it's very rare to actually see the moment of birth. But I did just film a couple of months ago, uh, less than one day old baby rhino, which was oh, so wow. special. Amazing. Yeah, we found her right after she gave birth. And... How big are they when they first come out? When they're that age? Um, tiny, tiny little things. Especially sometimes they're like kind of skinny. So they just look like flimsy, clumsy, flimsy, clumsy little dogs, basically. <laughs> yeah, they're about, I don't know, about this big. All right. Uh Awesome. And uh, final image here. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Very amazing. King, King of the jungle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is just such a beautiful portrait, too. I uh, feel like, just like when we were talking about Nanyuki, the mm. anti-poaching guy, I, this is one of those images that I felt like I just really captured the soul of the person in it. Um, I remember I took this in 2021, the summer of 2021, I actually got underneath a vehicle and I remember my Kenyan driver was freaking out because we were about maybe 20, 30 meters from him, I think. Okay. And so of course, if he decided that he yeah. wants to reach <laughs> under the car, I wouldn't be able to do anything, but just from experience, you know, lions, especially in protected areas, they're so used to cars that they don't actually look at you as a, as a source of food. Mm. They're just, they probably look at us as an annoyance more than anything. And so you can see he was actually focused on some zebras nearby. Oh, wow. But okay. uh, another extraordinary thing about this moment was you can really see how well they're camouflaged, especially in the dry season. If you look at the color of all these dry grasses all around, yeah. it's basically all the same. It's the same color palette. And so I just thought that was incredible too. It was like this lion that is like a part of its environment. And yeah, the expression on his eyes is just so incredible for me. And the face, you can see all the scars can, on his Yeah, face exactly. Too. I was just going to comment, like, you can see the story of, like, all the, the battles he's had. Yeah, totally. Yeah, speaking of battles of lions, this is also something that I feel like not many, not enough people talk about, is the, the risk that lions take every time they want to put food in their mouth. You know, they actually, they literally risk their lives when, when they want to eat. because even zebras and antelopes, they have crazy weapons. They have those antlers and they know how mm. to use them. Um, just a couple of months ago, we actually treated a lioness who got kicked in the face, in the jaw, and the entire half of her jaw was broken off Ugh. and like hanging off. So we had to operate and remove it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the price you pay when you wanna eat. And it's not the same for uh, herbivores, you know? You just bend down and you eat the grass in front of you. And yeah, so yeah. I just think, <laughs> you know, every time I see predators hunting, I root for the predator because I know what they have to go through. And I just always imagine the kindle of kittens waiting in a bush somewhere for their mom to bring back some food. So that's a good it's way to think that perspective. It. You know, we yeah. all see like uh, nature, we'll see a wolf or a lion tearing apart whatever they've happened upon and we're like oh no the poor the poor antelope the poor whatever but at the same time yeah you forget that this lion's got a family to feed back there too exactly and they're such an important part of the ecosystem i mean without predators there is no ecosystem so mm. without predators yeah. there is no ecosystem i like that <laughs> yeah amazing martin um what what kind of stuff are you up to now? What do you because you're in Thailand now? Are you just taking a break before some upcoming projects? What do you have on? I'm there? in Thailand now. I am just taking a little break because after the two months up north in northern Kenya with the nine one team, it was really tough. I mean, we lived in a military camp essentially with a bunch of sweaty dudes all day long, and so no internet, no Wi Fi, nothing like that. So. I just, uh, it was also the middle of the worst dry season that we've had in 40 years in Kenya. Mm. 
And so I just needed, I needed a break. <laughs> I needed a little break and come to a very wet place with lots of ocean around. <laughs> you did that. Uh, when we opened up, you said that uh, when you went to Kenya, just, when you went to Africa, it felt like you were arriving home. And you just said, we've had the, it was like the dry season we've had in 40 years, right? So you're saying yeah. we, so it does feel like you really adopted it as your home. You feel that's where you belong. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. I mean, you know, over the years I've actually lived in Kenya. Like I, you know, for about two years, I actually didn't have an apartment in Canada. I, every time I would come back for a couple of weeks, I would just stay with friends because I didn't have a home in Canada. So Kenya is in many ways, literally my second home. And so, yeah, I just, it is kind of how I talk about it as my home. Beautiful. Um, where can, where can people find you and, and kind of see some more of your work, see some of your films, images, and, and stuff like that? Instagram. Instagram is kind of my stomping ground for all the stuff that I do. Um, all the images and clips and videos, they all end up there. I just love the Instagram community. I was never able to leave it over the years. I kind of left Facebook a couple of years ago, but I can't leave Instagram just yet. There's such an amazing community of people there and like-minded conservationists as well and so i just always found it a really nurturing and beautiful platform i've heard they're also uh, going back to prioritizing the still image which is exciting for me as a photographer that is exciting yeah wow when when did you hear that there's been a big shift lately actually yeah it was just a couple days ago there's um Facebook was demonetizing. They were going to bring uh, like monetizing their Facebook reels, like their version of shorts, mm. and they're going to stop doing that. Uh, YouTube is actually um, putting a lot of effort now into podcasting as opposed to shorts. And Instagram has turning away from prioritizing their short form content and now going back more to uh, the still image. So there seems to be a, a shift, you know, a shift in the land. So it's uh, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause all I've been hearing for the last few years is, or a couple of years is reels, 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 short videos. Yeah. Yeah. So and I think the, cool. the shorts work for subscriptions uh, and getting eyes on your content, but in terms of converting mm -hmm. them to like sales and, and monetizing it, uh, shorts aren't mm -hmm. good for that. So I think the long form content is still, I still good for that. Yeah, that's exciting. We'll see more photos instead of uh, viral videos. Yeah, no doubt, sir. Uh, I want to. I want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, obviously, super appreciated. I love seeing these photos. I remember that the first photo I saw of yours that I fell absolutely in love with. We don't have it here, but it was a looked like a larch. It was just a yellow leaf tree in this crazy rainstorm. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, that was actually a snowstorm. Snowstorm. Snow. <laughs> yeah. Do you know where I took that? It was right at the front lawn of Guelph, University of Guelph. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You know that front kind of park that's right in the center? Yeah. Right there. It was one of those maple trees and it was in the middle of autumn. I know exactly the photo you're talking about. It was in the middle of autumn, these beautiful, vibrant yellow leaves. And out of nowhere, this snowstorm came and I just remember snapping this picture because the color contrast between the yeah. snow and the yellow leaves was so crazy. And yeah, that's funny that you remember that. Oh, it's I funny, eh? The power of images, you know? Yeah. Yeah. More so than the moving image. Yeah. Because if you take yeah. the right image, that one image that contains a world inside of it, you never forget it. That's right. Like with so, a film or a story, like a documentary, a movie, whatever, you can remember the, the overarching story, maybe the feeling that it gave you. Yeah. But that's that I, like I can't think of a, a wonderful movie I've seen, even my favorite movies and think of one like yeah. screen that screen grab that jumps out at me. Uh, but as, I can I can point to a bunch of images that have had that impact. Right. Totally. I know. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I guess that's what makes us photographers, you know, when your so. brain is wired <laughs> like that, you know. Awesome. Uh, Martin, again, thanks again for coming on. Is there anything else you want to you want to add and, and uh, say to the audience before we sign off? Just that back to the first point that we talked about is that we will never be separate from nature. Even if you grew up in a city, don't fool yourself. We are not separate from nature. And I just think it's 
I don't want to call it a duty because it feels wrong. Like it's like breathing, you know, breathing is not a duty. It's just mm. something we have to do. And that's how I look at uh, the protection of wilderness and nature as well. It's just something we have to do as a collective, you know, whatever you can do in your backyard, you don't have to go to Antarctica to stop the ice from melting. Just, you know, if everyone does whatever they can in their neck of the woods, I think the world can become a much better place. And I know that for a fact, it's not just a, it's not just an inspirational cheesy quote that I'm trying to end on. Like I really know that to be true. And I, that's the message I want to put out is take care of nature, take care of the nature that's right around you and the world will be a better place. Yeah. Take care of it. It will take care of you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. I appreciate that, Martin. We'll, yeah. we'll talk DJ, to you. We'll thank you so you much, sir. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. I'll Cheers, talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh -huh.